Let's talk about where we stand as far as the FAA, the AMA. The CIA? The CIA, they, they might be involved. <laughs> we don't know where we stand with the CIA. <laughs> That's true. That's all hush. This is the RC Roundtable, a casual discussion about all aspects of flying model airplanes. All right. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the show. As usual, I have with me Terry Dunn. Hi there. And the Lee Ray. The Lee Ray. Yes, here I am. Yes, you're the one and only Lee Ray. Okay, well, let's get this show started. Uh, we'll talk about some uh, new things that popped up. So I see Align Helicopter Company has a new T-Rex model coming out, uh, what they call a 470L. It's uh, slightly larger than their pretty common 450. Uh, this looks to be about the same size as a Goblin 380, as they say it also runs 380mm blades. And it uh, looks pretty nice. They're talking, there's not a whole lot of information about it. It had a, couple, a few pictures and a short blurb. And I, I tried to poke around and see if I could find more details about it, but I couldn't seem to find much other than, uh, like I said, it runs 380mm blades. Apparently it's going to run off a of 6S lithiums and use their 470 class motor does look like it has a carbon fiber frame and a belt drive and apparently it comes it's not clear if it comes with their speed fuse or a regular pot and boom because the picture shows both uh, they do have a short video on YouTube and on their site and it shows it kind of flying around really nice like uh, so it seems like a really nice upgrade to their typical 450 size helicopter and I'd really like to get more for information about it since I do have a couple of T-Rex helis myself uh, both a 450, 500, and 600. So uh, this will be, looks like a, a nice little upgrade to the 450 size. I know you guys aren't big into helicopters, but I thought... Yeah, yeah was... I understood about a third of what you just said. Um, <laughs> so help me uh, get better acquainted with this stuff. You talked about two different types of uh, fuselage or structure, like pod and boom, or what's the other thing? Uh, what they call a speed fuse. It's basically, it looks like a, a full fuselage, but it's not of any real helicopter. It's sort of just a sleek, uh, fuselage that covers the boom and the main canopy, sort of a futuristic looking thing. Um, kind of like what they used to fly in pattern a lot, or maybe still do, uh, for, it's just something sleek and aerodynamic, but doesn't look like a real helicopter other than just. Wait, is the body load carrying? Or is it just a shroud no, around the normal? It's just a shroud around everything. Uh, okay. Just gotcha. to clean it up aerodynamically. Now, my understanding of the smaller helicopters is that 6S sounds like a pretty high cell count for something that size. Is that new, or am I just out of touch? Uh, you're a little bit out of touch. Uh, it, it's There's kind of two thoughts. You can certainly fly it in less. Uh, I fly 4S on my 450, for example. But you've got the guys where it... It, unless the thing is screaming at a million RPM, uh, they think it's underpowered. So you have, if you want to be really aggressive, you need the power, so you need to go about 6S for something this size. And what kind of capacity? Uh, probably 2200s. Oh, okay. So still roughly. smaller size cells, but more of Yeah, they're small. Yeah. Okay. You, you're getting a higher voltage, so you can spin the higher RPMs, and these things just scream. It's, if you've ever seen the videos of these things flopping around like dead fish or fish out of water, just really, really aggressive on the collective where they, they, they come screaming down and pull out the last microsecond and 
really throw the thing around the sky. You know, as they're running high cell counts, really screaming. Uh, it's a sacrifice of runtime, of course. If you're going to fly, 30, scale, 30 seconds. <laughs> but it was yeah. a fun 30 seconds. It was a really fun 30 seconds. <laughs> so, but yeah, I'm not that aggressive. I prefer, uh, in a lot of cases, somewhat lower cell count and just kind of have a nice fun time tooling around. Uh, and I've had discussion with other guys too that, you know, you really don't need a lot of RPM to have a good time with it. You can certainly do it if you want to, but there's actually people who actually like to fly around with, with really low RPM. Just to show that, yeah, you don't really need to have the thing screaming like a bat out of hell to fly. Is it a, a case of diminishing returns? As in, do you get that much more aerobatic performance out of 6S than you would out of, say, 5S? Uh, it depends it, what you're doing. One of those yeah. things where only the top-tier guys can really tell the difference. No, no, I wouldn't say that. It just depends how aggressive you're getting with it. There's guys that when they fly 3D, it looks like they're almost out of control. Right. And to do that kind of stuff, you do need a high RPM. You're doing a lot of speed and power. And so they'll have really strong servos and things are screaming 3,000 RPM or whatever. Uh, but the more classical 3D, no, you didn't need that much power. But, you know, it's it's personal taste, that kind of stuff. Okay. I have another but question. Yeah. yeah. And Lee, forgive me if I'm uh, barging out of your time here. But um, it seems like from the outside, since I'm not familiar with helicopters that much, there's a lot of iterations with small increments in size difference. Like there's a 500, a 550, a 600. Um, what are all those What are all those differences? How are they significant? Uh, well, yeah. There's just no standard because sometimes it refers to the blade size and sometimes it refers to the motor size. And even when this came out, a lot of people were saying, well, what does the 470 mean? And then is it like a 380 size or what? And what? Uh, mainly because when Align first came out with their series of helicopters, they went by the motor class, the motor size. And so the 450 reflected the motor class. But then you had other companies like Goblin, uh, when they came out, they referred to the size of the blades. And so, uh, as I mentioned before, the Align 470 and the Goblin 380 are basically the same size helicopter. If you're not confused about that yet, uh, so so mainly the size when you go up in number, it's bigger. A 700 size is you know, going to run is much bigger than a 450, and you're going to have run more batteries, more motor, and that kind of stuff. And so, usually nowadays, I think it refers mainly to the blade size, but not always. That's clear as mud. <laughs> yes, that's what happens. We got different companies wanting to uh, have their own standards for things. Yeah, it sounds like there was the same confusion a lot of people have with brushless motors because there's no real central convention for for naming them. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, anyways, I, I thought thought that was pretty interesting that they they're they're, they're still cranking out new designs and. Uh, uh, I may or may not end up getting one. I don't know, but I uh, get some more information about it. See how what the, the general thought is on it when it actually comes out. And what does something like that cost? No idea. They have no pricing. Very little information on it, other than a few pictures and some CGI and and that a show here. Supposedly they're going to be bring it to the Urcha big helicopter meet in Muncie, Indiana, at the AMA headquarters, uh, and that's probably when they'll have maybe an official release and specs and that kind of stuff. Keep us updated. <laughs>
I think I will. Well, I noticed on Tower Hoppy's website recently that they had listed the SIG Cobra as a new release. And I thought that was a little strange because that seems like one of those models that's been around forever. Um, I didn't do any research on it, but what, what I think is going on is that it's a re-release and it kind of signifies two things. One, that kit building is not dead because this isn't an ARF, it's a, a box of lumber. Really? And uh, number two, it, uh, it also talks to the fact that SIG is not dead, where it looked like they were going to go away for a while. Uh, they've got some new owners who are putting some money into it, and so a lot of those older kits, like the Cobra, are coming back. And it also looks like they're releasing some new stuff. I see a new big version of the Rascal and, and other things like that. So that's good to see. Yeah, that is really surprising. I wonder if kits are making a comeback of somewhat. I don't know if it's so much a comeback as a, a reluctant death. I think there's still a core group of people out there who are uh, strong enough to keep a few cottage you know, manufacturers going. It's hard to imagine that it would make a big comeback. Would you consider building a kit? Well, sure. Um, and I was going to ask you guys how recently you've built a kit. Uh, I still have several in the box, and I, I still enjoy building balsa kits from time to time. Um, but to go back to what I said a minute ago, uh, I probably have to correct that a little because there is kind of a resurgence in building. If you look at um, like the flight test models, I think they've introduced a lot of people to the concept of make it yourself, just in a much more simplified form than the balsa kits that we grew up with. So if you want to look at it that way, then sure, the, there is kind of a resurgence in a DIY, DIY attitude. Now, this is their 60 size, right, you're talking? The Cobra? No, it's the smaller one. Um, I forget what size engine it takes. Uh, let's see here. Like a 40 size, maybe, or something? Between 19 and 35. The yeah, 19 to 35, and it's 45-inch wingspan. And then they have oh. a bigger one, the King Cobra, that takes, I believe, a 60. And th they look very similar. I believe the bigger one uses a foam core wing, where the smaller one is all built up. But, you know, it's basically just a, an upsized version. Did they, does it look like they've tweaked the kit any, say, for, like, an electric conversion or something? Or is it just the old one reboxed? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. It says glow-powered on the technical notes, but that means nothing these days. You can probably yeah. quickly do that. Yeah, I would guess so. Yeah, sure, with a kit, you can make the mods and pretty easily. But, yeah, it doesn't appear to be an EP-ready kit. I remember some years ago, a club member of mine had one, and it was a really nice flying plane. Really. Yeah, it's one of those classic designs that just kind of is iconic. Well, it's good for SIG to come back out with that and still show a heartbeat. Yeah, right. Uh, I hope they're around for a long time. They yeah. actually had another plane that I really like, a, a Dornier DO-17, not DO-217, DO-217, I believe. Uh, okay. Twin-engine German bombers, kind of smallish. Uh, it's a kit as well, but I, every once in a while I, I see that. I, I really should pick that up. Well, talking about SIG, if we're going to jump on that, they... They made an electric uh, SIG four star, and I had oh, one of my right. one of my first conversions was a SIG four star forty to electric. I think you guys have seen it. I flew it at best, and um, I traded that for my Pawnee, 
but I really liked that plane. It flew great. Um, I did change the gear, which made it fly or, excuse me, land much better. Um, but then I noticed after I had done that, they came out with a couple of EPs. In fact, I think they have, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, a 20-size electric four-star. So I do hope they're still in business. I, I do like that plane. I think it's a great low-wing trainer. Well, I don't want to turn this into a SIG discussion, but I, you know, they, they do, in fact, make planes that are electric ready now so i mean obviously uh, yeah uh, terry uh, you've got the senorita didn't you wasn't the senorita um yeah they've a lot of their new stuff they call the eg so electric or glow um, so it seems to be their new standard that at least for the arfs that they make it so it's easily adaptable either way uh, for oh, instance good. it'll come with a battery hatch or you know, a firewall that's easy to put a motor on and yeah, I see the four star that you're talking about. They've got two new ones: a four star fifty four and a four star sixty four, both of which are nitro or gas. Or excuse me, nitro ah. or electric. Hmm, I'm another one to add to my possible purchase list. Got it. Years ago, I built I built a Sig Hummer. It was actually my first low wing plane that I RC plane that I made, uh, and it had an O four nine on it, and I, I was Pretty low time pilot at the time, but I got it running and flew it. Had a lot of successful flights with it, and it's funny. I even hacked in some retracts in at one point, uh, and which was funny because the field I flew in, I could never take off with, with wheels. I'd have to hand launch it, but I could lower the gear and land it. So I did it more as an exercise and experimentation than any real practical sense. But it was a really nice flying little plane. It looks like a chaos. Uh, yeah, okay, I can see that. Maybe squint a little bit. <laughs> yeah. It's standard Hershey bar wing, boxy fuselage. It hey, at least good, it... but there's nothing fancy about it. Yeah, not fancy, but it's a very nice looking plane. It was a very quick build. And so this would make a great kit. If somebody wants to start a kit for the first time, I'd recommend the Hummer. It's a very, very nice, quick build, easy to fly, reasonably attractive, and not expensive. Well, I'm going to bring some news, uh, aviation news, or model aviation news into the discussion. Let's talk about where we stand as far as the FAA, the AMA. The CIA? The CIA, they, they might be involved. <laughs> we don't know where we stand with the CIA. <laughs> That's true. That's all hush. The FAA ran out of time getting the House and the Senate to approve several changes to the new 2016 FAA Reauthorization Act. Now, some rules were approved that applied to manned aviation, uh, commercial, private pilot. But for us, that meant the changes that they were trying to implement to model aviation were never agreed upon. So the signed bill or extension by the president means that Rule 336 of the 2012 Reauthorization Act is still intact. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you, if you know the hobby, Rule 336 is kind of our motto. <laughs> it's our, our chant. And, you know, why is it important? Well, for us, the, the Rule 336 are our five laws or commandments, <laughs> I guess. And they're real simple. I mean, I'll go them real quick. Number one, the aircraft is flown for hobby and recreational use. Number two, you operate within a community-based say safety guidelines, or in this case, uh, AMA safety guidelines. Number three, uh, you don't fly a plane more than 55 pounds. And I'm sure the, the restriction there is anything over 55 pounds could be quite dangerous. 
So they just limit that. And, and I don't know many people who have that. And, and if you do, I don't think those who build a 55-pound aircraft uh, hesitate about getting their aircraft registered or looked at. Uh, number four, uh, don't interfere with manned aircraft. Uh, that's a given. And number five, you know, if you have a, if you want to fly within five miles of an airport, uh, you should work out a deal with them or acknowledge that, uh, you know, you give them a right away. That was it. Just five simple rules. And the scary part was when the Senate got a hold of the, the bill or the reauthorization act, they started changing the language. And the part that concerned us is that they included new rules. And one of them was you cannot fly beyond visual line of sight. Uh, they changed the five-mile airport dialogue so that you had to get permission if you were within five miles, uh, like like maybe even a written permission. They restricted flying to 400 feet, which that's a huge issue for people who fly gliders or jets or giant-scale aircraft. That was a huge uproar, and for me it was an uproar because of the 400 feet altitude. I fly gliders past that all the time, and I've especially if I do thermal flying. I mean, I've, I've flown a glider for over an hour. So that was, that was just unbelievable that they were going to suggest that. And then number seven, which I think got everybody in an uproar, and that was uh, if you wanted to fly model airplanes, you had to get uh, FAA approval and take a test. So going back to the what happened, Rule 336 is intact. None of those are going to imply. We're still in a limbo stage. We still have to find out what we're going to do for the next 14 months. Because uh, this is just an extension, they could still get together and hash out the, the changes that we're afraid of. But this is a good position for us, and I'm hoping that uh, now that we've got a little breathing room, maybe we can gather our troops together and, and fight for another day. And speaking of fighting, I wanted to also mention that there is still a lawsuit out by our friend John Taylor against the FAA concerning the registration process. Many of us firmly believe that this was illegal for the FAA to instigate this registration system uh, against hobbyists. Uh, it goes against Rule 336, so the fact that we still have 336 today means that the fight against the FAA is probably even stronger. The response from the FAA is due Thursday, August 4th, so I will keep people posted when I get an update from Mr. Taylor on on the result of that so we're crossing our fingers and and hoping that his case against them is uh, passed and maybe we can finally do away with this registration system well i was going to point out that as you mentioned you were kind of disenchanted with the ama or at least you felt there was a, a lack of urgency on their part but this development i don't see as a movement it's kind of uh, just kicking the can down the road so it's just stalling the inevitable fight to come so I don't know if I feel any better about any of it at this point Fitz this is where Fitz says I wasn't listening <laughs> <laughs> no I, I basically agree with Terry I'm sort of cautiously optimistic at this point and really I think it's still pretty early to, to really get a full handle where we're going to be going with this thing. It, it seems to be an improvement over what was done before. So hopefully this is a trend and not an anomaly. Yeah, I, I just feel like every time either the FAA or Congress has said, trust us, we got this, it, it's never good in the end. So I, I'm in a wait and see mode. And by waiting and seeing, I mean doing whatever I can to let my 
my representatives know how I feel and you know, spreading the word. And I agree with both of you. This is a this is a fight we must continue. We have a, a, a life support extension that you know I think this could bring more attention to it now that people are, are starting to understand it better. Um, well, obviously, we, we our podcasts are usually a, a week to two out. So if anything else, please stay tuned on our Facebook page, and I'll put in reports as soon as I uh, read them from Mr. Taylor. All right. Well, we look forward to hearing the results. Uh, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. All right, we're back. We all like to fly various forms of airplanes and whatnot. And we had a discussion earlier, and we thought, you know, every once in a while, we get a plane that just is just a lemon right out of the box. It just does not fly well, or there's something wrong with it, and it's just not enjoyable. And so we thought, hey, what's your worst plane that you've ever had? And I thought, well, that's a, that might be a good discussion to have between us. Anybody want to chime in first? Lee does. <laughs> no. You always have opinions. Come on. I I don't even know the name of it. I just know I, it's like I put it in the back of my mind. It was so bad. Names I, withheld to protect the innocent. I, I can tell you some. Someone's going to say I had that plane. Uh, I have no knowledge of who made it. It was when we were doing more um, ABS plastic arfs. You know. Uh, kind of like my Kyosho Cessna Cardinal, uh, it's ABS fuselage, kind of just a plywood tray, but it was, it was kind of like a P-51 design. It, it, I mean, it wasn't. It's probably a box made in China, but it was a plastic wing, plastic fuselage, nothing fit. It, it, the screws weren't right. I was pulling, you know, parts from my collection over the years to make this thing go together, uh, taxied, <laughs> taxied like a two-wheel tricycle. Um, it was it was awful. I got that thing in the air. Pitch control was crazy. I know I had you know everything centered right. It was also a glow field plane, so I was probably hot on the throttle just trying to get up in altitude. But the thing would just not respond. And and knowing full well how much of a pain it was to fly, the moment it spun in and dug a hole in the ground, I think I just picked up the pieces, threw in the back of my truck, and didn't look at it ever again. So again, I don't have the name of it. I just know that that was one of my worst experiences. It took me a long time to build it. I was frustrated. It didn't land, <laughs> so to speak. So there you go. Was it a one and out, like one flight, or did you actually? I don't. I wouldn't even call it a flight. I probably could have thrown it farther than it flew. <laughs> so this was the maiden flight, and it ended in disaster. Yes. Uh, that's too bad. I think one wing was symmetrical and one wing was flat bottom. <laughs> it's a feature. <laughs> no, I, again, I wish I could give you more. It's really lack of information. But again, out of the box, a total disaster. My worst airplane, I have to admit, is actually one that I designed and built from scratch. So It was a, a design I loosely called the wet jet. So I had this bright idea that I was going to make an EDF-powered seaplane. And so I sketched it out, and I made it out of foam, and it actually didn't look half bad. It was a little boxy, but, but it was okay. It had a nice shape to it. 
Um, but the only problem was it wouldn't take off. So it was designed to take off from the water, but it stuck to the water like, I don't know, what sticks to water? Whatever it is, this is what it did. Um, it had the strangest behavior. And it turns out it's all because I just didn't understand what it took to design a, a hole properly for a, a seaplane. I knew that it needed a step in the hole, but there's way more to it than that, I soon found out. So, uh, basically, when I would go to power it up to take off, rather than getting up on step and planing, it would stand up on the tail. It would get on the, the last quarter of the fuselage length and stand almost vertically on that, and nothing I did would make it stop. So, yeah. anyway, so I played around with it for a while. I took it uh, to the lake a few times, trying to make tweaks to it and get it to plane, and I finally just gave up. Um, uh, Strangely enough, I took it to the regular flying field once or twice, and you may have seen it, Fitz, but uh, I was able to hand launch it, and it didn't fly half bad once I got it in the air. It wasn't particularly fast, because it was kind of big, but um, in the air it was fine. It just wouldn't get off the water, ever. So I chalked that one up to experience and moved on. And I haven't approached uh, an EDFC plane since, although I'm sure it's viable, as long as you design the hole correctly. Well, what do they say? You learn from your mistakes? What did you learn from this build? Um, <laughs> I, could, I did learn a few things about hull design as it relates to, to airplanes. Probably not enough to be proficient at it yet. I've still got some lessons to learn. But, you know, uh, it was fun. I, I never stomped on it and destroyed it out of frustration. It was one of those where I would scratch my head and say, oh, here it is. I figured it out. Then I try that. I'm like, oh, that's not it. So the the learning journey is half the fun for me. So this provided plenty of that. I can tell you about a multi-rotor I had that was not good. Please do. Have you seen commercials maybe on YouTube or Facebook for the World Tech Toys Striker? It's mm. one of those that it comes with a camera and that's marketed to kids. Yeah. Doesn't sound familiar. Yeah, well, it's got a Hollywood-style marketing on it. Anyway, I got my hands on one of those, and it was um, not good from, from the get-go. I got about two minutes of flight time out of it, and then eventually quit flying altogether. And all the motors had a bunch of play in the prop shaft. and You could just tell that quality was not the top priority. Uh, like, on the radio, the the joysticks they had flash from molding but it was on top of them so it's exactly where you grab so it would poke you every time you, you went to fly i had to shave all that off but uh, it just a lot of little things like that where you could tell that this is their marketing goal is just to get all the units out the door whether or not they fly is kind of secondary <laughs> So, and it turns out a friend of mine here had one as well and had nothing but problems with it. So I do not recommend the striker, no matter how enticing the commercial makes it look. Well, like Terry, I have two as well. Uh, the first one is uh, years ago, I got a Halsa Balsa P51. Now, these are kits, and this one I did not build. It was uh, given to me by a flying buddy of mine who was a good friend. And at the time, I hadn't known him all that long, but he had this plane. He had crashed it and decided he didn't want to mess with it anymore. I said, here, you want this plane? 
Uh, just rebuild a nose, stick an engine in it, and you're good to go. Which size? Because I seem to think they had different sizes of that kit. This was a 20 size. Oh, okay. I had one of those too. Uh, what he kind of neglected to tell me was that this thing, I don't think anything was built straight on it at all. It was not a good flying plane. A little average out, right? (laughs) This thing, I I ended up flying it quite a few times, but it was not really all that fun a plane to fly. It would snap if you looked at it wrong. I don't think I'd ever could get it right quite into trim. And it was a real handful to fly. And after flying it a few times, he goes up to me and says, Hey, it's flown much better than whenever I had it. I was like, how bad was this plane? (laughs) Wow. It's funny you mentioned trim because when I was living in Houston, you used to fly my airplanes a lot. And I would always think they were trimmed. I'd give you the transmitter and you'd spend two or three minutes trimming it out. (laughs) That's because you're trim deficient. Ah, Okay. Yeah, I, trim I, challenged. Yeah, I'll admit that. I think I subconsciously correct for things that should be trimmed. Like when I'm flying, I just correct for it automatically without even thinking about it, and never focus on doing a hands-off trim. So that's why I had you. That's why that's that's my purpose in life to trim people's planes. And by my last breath, I will trim them all. <laughs> Also, another one is, uh, you talk about multi-rotor. I want to go way back to a helicopter. Uh, there, a long time ago, there was a helicopter called the GMP Cricket. This was one of the early, early rail control helicopters. It was fixed pitch, ran off a, a roughly 20, 30 size engine. Uh, no gyros in this thing. This was really crude, but it was one of the first mass produced helicopters in, in, in the States. And I had been playing around with helicopters for a little while. I had a shuttle, I think. And, I could hover it around a little bit, maybe a little bit of forward flight. I wasn't very experienced, but I was. I could keep the thing in the air. And so I had another flying buddy. He had this cricket thing, and he has having a hell of a time trying to fly. So he said, hey, you can fly helicopters. Why don't you give it a try? And I'm thinking, ha, 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 sure. And uh, that thing was probably the worst flying helicopter I've ever had. It was absolutely terrible. It was, I know they fly, but without a gyro, the tail was just, completely unmanageable it was every which way and being fixed pitch and whatnot it wasn't very responsive so it was i after several attempts i didn't crash it but it just was way too much of a workout and i gave it back to him and said that it's it's all you (laughs) i can't do anything with this thing was it the design or the setup of that particular one it's so long ago i can't really remember uh i think it was a probably a combination of both uh because uh, I had seen one later on at somebody who flown, and he seemed to be able to fly it reasonably well. So uh, it probably, in hindsight, it may have had some issues with the control setup. Because uh, it wasn't mine, so I didn't really go through it too thoroughly. Uh, and the guy who was flying it wasn't experienced in helicopters. So it very likely something was not quite right in the setup. And the fact it didn't have a gyro didn't help at all either. So I think if I... I actually saw one recently. I think it was on my trip to Connecticut I talked about. There was one hanging up in a hobby store, and I saw that. And I thought, well, it might be fun to try it again after all these years and see if that thing is actually flyable. Yeah, that's the thing about whether it's a built-up kit or even an ARF. And multi-rotors, uh, eh, probably not multi-rotors so much, unless you're building it. But helicopters, there are so many variables involved with the setup process that it's hard to demonize any kit for, for not flying well when it could just be what you did to it. 
Yeah, yeah, it's all in the setup. I do have an honorable mention, and that would be Terry, your your prototype parallax. <laughs> uh, like I said, it could just be what you did to it, Fitz. <laughs> you didn't trim it right. Uh, nice diversion there. I I told you to paint it yellow. You refused. <laughs> it was the wrong color. Got. That's why I didn't fly right. Nailed it. <laughs> that thing, you remember, especially before we, we changed props on it. It's funny you mentioned that because um, when the next topic we'll, we'll discuss here, when I was researching my archive of videos, I came across the footage of the, the original test flights of my parallax, which didn't go much better than yours. So... To look at those flights and then realize that we eventually figured out how to make these things fly well is kind of amazing. Yeah. <laughs> they were little more than ballistic launches into the ground. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a duck that just got winged. It was just hilarious. Yeah. Especially mine it was just, it was just uncontrollable. You launch it and it immediately swap ends and come back at you. Yeah, it would like go straight up and then come down and spin. I, I forget what all it did, but now the big fix was putting a counter rotating prop on it, right? Yes, yes. Okay. We were bit, getting bitten by the P factor, and so we changed the direction of the prop, and that instantly tamed it mostly. <laughs> I have flown parallax models with um, the wrong prop on it but not the canard version. So I'm not sure what the factor is, but it, yeah. Yeah, it'll bite you if you're not careful with it. The, the canard one had issues. Now, yeah. now, we'll say that your your regular tail version flew fantastic. It was just the early prototype canard version, which had multiple issues that with any scratch design is, is probably pretty normal, but I just thought it was funny. Yeah, like with the wet jet, you, know, you you try it out, you see what it does, you make adjustments. And I never got the right combination with the wet jet, but I think with the parallax, I eventually zeroed in on a, a good combination. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm on your wall of shame, huh? <laughs> yeah, as an honorable mention. Okay. Does it still exist? Oh, yeah. Yep. Okay, good. It's Have you ever painted it? No. Uh, I'll get to the, one of these years, I'll paint it. It's got Fair stickers enough. on it, though. <laughs> or decals. <laughs> so, as I mentioned, uh, talking about the parallax, one of the projects we recently came up with was to pull together all of our various video footage of crashes and other incidents that, that we've recorded over the years. Um, so, when we did that, we found that we actually had quite a bit of stuff. I was surprised. And it was roughly an equal amount of time from each of us as well in terms of the, the amount of footage. So I put together the first batch into a video that we put on YouTube this week. Um, I guess by the time you listen to this podcast, this week will be last week. Um, and it's uh, it's not all crashes. There are some good crashes in there. But uh, crashes and nose-overs and bad landings and gear up landings, things like that, the, the typical carnage that you would see at the field. So I think it's a lot of fun, and uh, I've got enough at this point to make two more videos. So we'll keep them coming and keep shooting video. Yeah, I take macabre 
enjoyment in watching RC crash videos for some reason. I don't know why. Just Yeah, I think like most people, I don't want people to crash, but if they're going to crash, I want to see it <laughs> in HD. So. Well, and I have I have footage of one that's one of my most popular seen videos on YouTube, but it's not in the current video that we have online, but uh, it, I'm sure it'll be up there soon. I won't say what it is. It, but it's I, the closer of our next video. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I mean, if, yeah. if all the videos I've taken, you know, that was the most heartbreaking, but yet I can't believe I got it. <laughs> yeah. Excellent coverage of a horrible crash. Yeah. And then, right, so I want to talk about the name. We We called it Crashy Smashy. And that came from you, Lee. Can you explain that? Oh, yeah. How old, how old are you, Lee? Because <laughs> when you first said that, I'm like, what is he talking about? And then you explained it, and I'm like, okay, that sounds right. <laughs> okay, I know it's it's kitty like, but it, and yes, I was I was old enough probably not to be using those words. But uh, a friend of mine and I, when we flew a lot at, at some schools and open fields, um, it was just our way of you know patting each other on the back and saying, you know, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> so when we when, when we crash and hopefully we oh, I have some more on on footage on, on other videos we would just look at each other and go crashy smashy and then move along and then when my kids started coming out and watching some of that it was just I mean for me as a parent to be saying it you know and tongue in cheek for my friend and then hear this little child voice go crashy smashy it just uh, it it stuck so I mean and they still do it to this day so if they see something and and. Terry and I were joking. It's like, I, as long as they don't say it to the guy who's flying, <laughs> if it's not, if it's not your dad, you can't say that to them. <laughs> but uh, that's we just we're just taking it from something I used to do. Yeah, maybe if I um, cause a car wreck, I'll try that line. Or whoopsie doodle, <laughs> whoopsie doodle. Oh, I'm so clumsy. <laughs> yeah, that'll Look, lighten the mood. Looks like we had a fender bender. <laughs> well, I, I hope they enjoyed. I mean, get over the name if you don't like it. Uh, enjoy the videos. I I was surprised to see some of the stuff that I guess uh, Fitz got to include. So I'm looking forward to to more of it. What you didn't like my footage? No, I did, but I hadn't seen all the Fitz. Fitz had some some good stuff too. Well, okay, so. Parallax, bed crash footage. I'm oh, keeping gosh. score. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, someone's touchy today. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't start out that way. It's the abuse that did it to me. Abuse. So while we're talking crashes, what was your most recent crash? Worthy. Not, mean, not a prop breaker, but a good crash. A personal plane or one we saw? Oh, uh, take your pick or do both. Well, I don't crash, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, as far as the worst crash I've ever seen, it'll be in the next video. But as far as my <laughs> own crash, I, I, I'm entertained by it because it's in the current video. But the story is I have that uh, Hobby King vampire. And uh, it's it's the, the jet that makes the little foamy crash in, in the footage. And since I had purchased it I've had some pitch problems with it and especially at high speeds it was the, the tail just must have been uh, moving too much and I, I didn't enjoy it so after that crash uh, at best I actually sat down and, and reinforced it someone had some skewers and uh, I glued that sucker and the next day that thing flew the best it ever had so as bad as the crash looked with all that foam flying um, I had the thing back in the air the next day and 
it's great. I still love that jet. So the crash actually helped me. <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought that up because I posted the video on our RC Groups blog and someone chimed in asking if that plane ever flew again because it's a pretty dramatic crash. Things were flying in the air in all directions. It was pretty impressive. <laughs> it, it, it did. It does look bad, but I think, what was it, uh, six or eight pieces, Fitz? Do you remember? Something like that, yeah. yeah it, it wasn't a lot. I mean, and, and, and though it looked bad, I mean, the pieces that broke were the ones that were not reinforced. And so after putting the skewers in and, um, again, <laughs> more glue, um, <laughs> it's great. And, in fact, I, I chimed into the uh, Vampire Forum on RC Groups and said, guys, if you haven't, you know, reinforce those booms, do it now because it'll fly much better for you. And I'm not the only one who's had pitch problems. So there you go. It's, uh, what do they call it, research, RNA? <laughs> Smashy, crashy. <laughs> crashy, smashy. No, crash. Oh, that's funny because, well, I'll tell you guys that offline. Never mind. Cut this. <laughs> Edit. <laughs> well, the last one I can think of is, I think I'd mentioned before in one of the earlier shows, was my Freewing F-14, which fell out of the sky for no apparent reason. And that it got pretty well obliterated, uh, which was unfortunate because it was a pretty nice flying plane. Uh, so I actually ended up taking all the gear and guts out of it, and they sell a replacement fuselage. So I do plan on rebuilding it with a new fuselage set, uh, which they were out of stock as I last looked. Uh, so when I get more in, I'll get another fuselage for it and put it all back together again and have a, another go at it. Still no theories on why it crashed? I have no idea. Uh, still no theories. Oh, that's My disconcerting. Best yeah. Uh, those are the worst kind when, when you're like, wait, what happened? I have no idea. The electronics seemed good when I went up to it. Uh, I don't know. Either something, I got a serious radio hit or turbulence. I don't know. It, very odd. Hmm. But, well, yeah, my last happens. good crash was a few weeks back. And, uh, I was fortunate to get it on video from a couple of angles because I had two onboard cameras at the time. But it was uh, my Staffenbiel Corsair, and uh, I was bringing it in for a landing, and it looked like I was going to go a little bit long, so I dropped full flaps when I was about six feet off the ground, and that thing just came to a halt in midair and kind of wallowed and landed on a wing, and I ripped off the landing gear and <laughs> tore it up pretty good. The airplane itself was fine, but I, I killed the landing gear. I had to put new retracts in. Oh, wow. So, but I, I got good footage of it. I had a camera underneath the belly, and uh, it went flipping across the runway. And also had one on top of the fuselage that caught pieces of the prop flying around. Oh, so is that going to be one of the crash videos? It's the opener and our next video. Oh, right. So it sounds like they spoil it. So it sounds like it has really effective flaps on the thing, though. Yes. I had it with two settings, and I think I was coming in with the the first setting. (laughs) Slow and reverse? Right. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, when I dropped full flaps, it just killed all the <laughs> It's like one of those Bugs Bunny cartoons. When you... Yes. <laughs> when he pulls the air brake lever, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> or it runs out of gas and the plane just stops in, the, in midair. Yeah. Yeah. So, completely my fault, not the airplanes, but, yeah, it was hard to watch. But I've uh, repaired it and flown it since then, so all is right with the world. Now that this conversation is stalled. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of breaks. (laughs) And we'll take a break and come back in a minute. 
Okay, guys, it's time to talk about tools again. And this time around, we're not going to focus on one tool, but let's discuss whatever tools that you use for shaping foam. That means cutting it or sanding it or whatever you do to make an airplane out of foam. What tools do you use? Fits, go. A uh, combination of knives and uh, some sort of foam cutter, hot wire cutter, that kind of stuff. Like, do you have a, like? Do you have one in particular, one that we can share with the listeners so they can see with their eyes closed <laughs> what, what you're talking about? <laughs> uh, I've used several Take things. Us to your place. It really depends what what I'm doing. You know, if I'm want to, of course, cut out a wing, I'll use. A, I have a, a hot wire bow that I've made out of uh, duct tape and bubble gum and nichrome wire, which I can hack out airfoils and wings, and I've done them multiple is, occasions. Is that design patent pending? <laughs> it's a fit special. It's a trade pro- secret. He has a lightning rod. He has to wait for the right storm to come along. <laughs> he, yeah, he baby. He cranks the plane up to the roof. <laughs> I, could, I could tell you it cuts really quick when lightning strikes it. <laughs> uh, I, I've also used, uh, I've, I've actually hacked a soldering iron before to, to, to cut channels and things like that with a, a real thick music wire in the soldering gun. Stinky. Uh, 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 one neat thing I've had is a you can get a attachment to a soldering iron to put like an exacto knife on it, and so you, I've cut through things with that before and whatnot. And what else? And of course, like a regular exacto knife, uh, box cutter knife, or something like that, or one of those uh, retractable blade knives. I found that can be really good for cutting foam bits bits out of foam and channels and whatnot. So I really just have a toolbox full of stuff, depending on what I'm doing. I don't know if you want, if you were t- talking a specific job or just in general. No, just generally, uh, like when you're going to approach a foam project, what what's sitting there on the bench? Uh, everything: knives, hot wire cutters. You uh, don't discriminate. I don't discriminate. I'm an equal opportunity cutter. All right. What about you, Lee? I have a Hobby Lobby Super Hot Wire Foam Cutter on sale Ooh, at Hobby Lobby for thirty four ninety nine, but with your 40% coupon, even less. Uh, it's a little tabletop AC-powered or battery-powered uh, hot wire cutter. Uh, it's got a nice little surface. Uh, I got it early on when I started doing foamies about 10 years ago, and I still have it. It works great. The downside is hand-shaping without a guide, without a template, is a little difficult. It's good to do rough cuts because the wire does move and, you, you know, you tend to shake and sometimes the hot wire will uh, cut more than you want. So I've found that if I make plywood templates um, first, if I'm especially making multiple pieces like ribs, that uh, that works much easier to, to make them you know, make rough cuts and then sand them fine. Uh, it's good for blocks. It's 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 limited because uh, the wire's only what like six or seven inches, so you, you can't do big blocks to to trim them down. And in fact, that I'm glad you kind of brought up the topic because I'm finishing up on my workbench a uh, an old foamy plane that's made of styrofoam, and I need to start shaping a new cowl. So I've been looking to get a handheld wire cutter. Um, I'm looking on Amazon. There's one called the Woodland Scenics, and I guess it's usually for people who are doing commercial shaping, you know, large sculptures. Uh, but some kind of hand wire cutter would be great to help me uh, trim that sucker. So, And, of course, a, an X-Acto knife. <laughs> can't, can't beat that. 
It's funny you mentioned a handheld one. I've, I've always thought about getting one myself because my bow is pretty big. But a handheld one looked like it'd be pretty convenient to have. And I'd be curious once you get yours or once you decide on one to let us know how it works. Okay. Yeah, there's, uh, yeah. again, I'm seeing one on Amazon. It's, it says it's by Horizon Hobby, but it's called Woodlands Scenics. Woodland Scenic, excuse me. I think that's the yeah, brand. Don't, aren't they for like train displays, things like that? Exactly, yeah. Something you that you're make a mountain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I'm going to make a flying RC mountain. <laughs> oh, don't tempt me. <laughs> well, challenge, I saw Challenge accepted. <laughs> uh, it's funny you mentioned we were talking about crashes in your vampire. Uh, as you know, I have a vampire as well that I got from a club member that crashed, and the nose was kind of all banged up and destroyed. And what I did was I took my hot wire bow and sliced off uh, the nose and grafted on a replacement nose. And I used some templates, and uh, and it worked out really well. Just take the, just cut right through the foam and glue on a new piece, and it was real convenient and real easy to do. Well, and if I can, I'll, and I'm not trying to. <laughs> ignore Terry with his foam cutting, but I'm trying to make a new plastic cowl for this airplane. So I'm stacking several pieces of blue foam, hot gluing them together, just temporarily stinging it to the nose, and then using a, a wire cutter to trim it down, sand it and shape it, and then send that plug to my buddy who can uh, do a vacuum foam. A vac- excuse oh. me, a vacuum form of the the new piece so I can use it as a removable cowl. Oh, nice. That sounds great. Well, that works out good. But can you use bare foam as a, a plug for vacuum forming? You can. You remember remember back when uh, Keith took our easy gliders and he put the foam, the, the, the plastic... Hello, I need more coffee. When he put the uh, the mold on top of it, so what he'll what he'll do is he'll take my plug, put the mold on top of it, make an inverse, fill it with something that's safe enough for his uh, foam, vacuum foam, and then pour me a new one. He'll take the foam, he'll shape it, put that stuff over it, he'll, then he'll have a, a negative. He'll fill it with something that can withstand the heat from the vacuum foam, vacuum form. Oh, so it's not the raw foam then? Yeah, he won't. Yeah, he won't shape the raw foam because it'll melt. Yeah, that's what Terry was asking. Exactly. So, but yeah. he'll take the plug. He'll make. He'll turn that in with fill that with material that can accept it. Right. Yeah, and like something like bondo or. Exactly. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Terry, you you started this mess. What's your favorite tools? Um, I don't know if I have a favorite, but like you guys, um, I use knives a lot. And whether it's box cutters or exactos, depending on the job. But I found, and you guys probably have two that. He sound like an assassin. <laughs> but uh, so I open my violin case full of knives, and uh, get out the one I need. But I find that cutting foam will dull the blade very quickly. So I have to be very careful to either replace the blade or sometimes I'll even sharpen it. Um, otherwise, you get rips. And, unsavory things on your cut and uh, I also use a lot of sandpaper for shaping I'll usually use a, a box cutter for the rough shaping and then I'll go back in and start with 80 grit and then go down to whatever finer sandpaper to to get the the, the final shape um, 
But you have to be careful too, because then you can gouge the foam if you're not careful. So I have yet to find that perfect tool that will shape foam without risk of damaging it somehow. So let me know if you run across something like that. Well, I'm going to plug uh, Keith Sparks' book, Building with Foam. He's got I've got the book, and he's got a nice little section in there on what tools he uses to shape foam. So if you're getting into the hobby or if you're starting to build planes with foam, no matter what kind it is, that's a that's a really nice book because he's got some incredible planes, you know, fiberglass planes built with blue foam. Oh, yeah, he's a master. And yeah. I, I think one of the things that I use now is a drywall sander. It's kind of a, a mesh, a hard mesh used for uh, shaping drywall mud. I might have got that from him. Because I've got his book, and, and that works well. But again, if you stray off course, you're going to gouge the foam a little. So, have you guys ever tried cutting sheet foam, thick sheet foam, with a table saw? No, no. Don't do it. It's a horrible, horrible <laughs> idea. <laughs> Yay! I did it right. <laughs> Actually, I would say any kind of saw that has rough teeth on the blades or any power saw like that it will grab it and if it doesn't stall the blade it's going to grab the foam and fling it and knock it around so the point here is if you're going to use power tools for shaping foam it's usually a bad idea but if you're going to do it make sure you're using a blade with fine teeth and, and go at it slowly yeah i imagine really really fine yeah it could be a bad day I guess that goes for power sanders, too, if you're using rough grit sandpaper. Yeah. I have a belt sander with some really rough stuff on it, and I stuck a hunk of foam in there, and it shot it across the garage. Now, we, we had talked about Keith Sparks. He actually has a technique where he talks about using a sort of router bit or a, uh, I don't know what kind of bit it is. It's a real rough-looking, um, roundish-looking thing with teeth on it. Oh, one of those sanding drums? Or is it a keyhole saw? I don't remember what he called it. I don't think it was a keyhole saw. He was talking about when you want, for example, he's making a fuselage, and you take a thick sheet of foam, you'll hollow out the inside of the fuselage shape. You actually will route it out with uh, a Dremel tool or a drill with this sort of bit on it. And it, it, it makes a bit of a mess, but he says it's really good for removing a lot of foam real quickly. Yeah, I'm surprised I didn't bring that up, because I use my Dremel sander a lot to, to do rough, you know, trimming you never get halfway through a job and then screw up and the the tool sends it rolling down the side of the model as i said rough shaping oh, yeah okay. really rough. i do that all the time <laughs> I, 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 I keep focusing on the negative side of it but i guess i'm just a negative person <laughs> and i want to bring up what terry said earlier and it's a it's a it's a kind of not a rule but a uh a tip I give my kids when I'm in the hobby shop and I'm trying to teach them how to do this. And, you know, the thing I learned since I started doing foam is using an X-Acto blade, as Terry said, they will dull. And the moment you are working on something very important and you drag that knife and it cuts an edge, you know, on the, on the blade and it rips your foam, you're just going to scream. So I always tell my kids, when in doubt, change it out. And I buy bulk number 11 blades. I I buy a lot, and I've got a huge collection of them. And if I ever sense something's not right with the blade, I don't try to sharpen it. I put it in a, a recycle jar, and I take another number 11, and I continue. And that's saved me a lot of frustration. 
does it mean that I'm cheap that I sometimes sharpen my number 11 blades? No, I that's you know what? I did some research. There are a couple of places that either will resharpen them or you can buy a tool that does it. I've never had success. So it seemed to me that $20 <laughs> was worth the cost to buy, you know, a bulk box of blades and just be done with it. And a box will last me at least a year, if not two. Oh, wow. You must go through them faster than I do. I bought a box of 100 several years ago, at least five, and I'm still working on it. Well, like I said, when in doubt, I don't even think about it. I, it's it's worth the cost to just switch to another blade. How do you dispose of them? There's a a wood shop that takes old blades, and I don't know what they do with them. They might sand them or shape, shape them, but I just put them in a glass jar on my table, and I send them there when it gets full. But, okay, you have a jar. I, I usually throw them away. If I have a spare hunk of foam, I'll insert the, the dead blade into that so it doesn't poke through the garbage bag. What I usually do is I put a piece of tape over the blade. Yeah, that works. Yeah, I mean, if you're throwing, throwing it out, but I um, I just use a little glass baby food jar and just put them in there, and then I take them to this place that um, they say they recycle the metal. Oh, it's not a bad idea. <laughs> I think we gave some good ideas on, on how to shape phone, and again... I've learned a lot from reading stuff online and uh, getting ideas from my fellow guys here. So, but uh, again, I, I'll let y'all guys know when I get that hand wire, uh, hand hot wire cutter, and see how that works. Please do. Yep, look forward to it. All right. Well, I think this concludes this episode of the RC Roundtable. And as always, thanks for listening. Please visit our website at rcroundtable.com where you can send us comments and suggestions and listen to our other great podcasts. Those who live in Las Vegas can listen to us over the radio at the all-new Magic 97.9 FM, KIOF LP Las Vegas. 